come now to the scripture. Let me ask you, please, um, to pray with me. Father in heaven, uh, as we say, often your word is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. It brings uh, uh, us uh, light that we may see. We can see you. We can see how it is that we are to live in you. And so I pray that you would fulfill that uh, declaration concerning your word uh, right now to us. That it would be a light to us that we would see you. We'd know your glory and we would know how it is that we're to walk, that we're to live or to put our feet as we walk out this faith uh, which you've given us and to which you call us. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn please to James, New Testament, book James chapter 2. I want to read verses 1 through 13. James in chapter 2, please. Verse 1, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you're called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well, but if you show partiality... You are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgments. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, uh, last Sunday we took up verses 1 through 7. This week, if God will help us, we'll take up verses 8 through 13. The difficulty in the churches to whom James writes is this problem of favoritism or showing Partiality. Remember, we said that little expression, partiality, could be translated receiving the face, meaning that the judgment is made in evaluation. People are valued, not on the basis of anything of substance, but simply on appearances or surface kind of matters, externals. In this case, it was how they were dressed, which gave an indication of their social standing, especially their economic standing in the community, whether they were rich or whether they were poor. And rich was seemed to be better than poor, so the rich man got the better place than the poor man. And thus, partiality, if you will, or favoritism, was shown not on the basis of any substance, but simply on the basis of appearance or on the basis of of social standing or their wealth, if you will. Now we know when we read that, 
That this isn't a problem out there, or isn't a problem that only happened in the days of James, but we know it's real. We know it happens among us. We know we do that. We evaluate, we value people based on externals. That's not the only thing, but, but let's face it, we do. And we're very creative at this, so it's even hard to come up with a definitive list of all the ways that we do this, whether it's by color or nationality or ethnicity or whether it's by social standing, whether it's by wealth or where you went to school or where you send your kids to school or how your family is structured, whether it's a single family or, or two-parent family. Um, uh, certainly a, a wealth and uh, appearance, uh, how attractive physically a person is, you see. All of those things go through our mind and many, many more. People even pick churches on the basis of appearance and externals, what the building looks like or, or if the music is cool or if the pastor's, you know, cool like, you know, like some are. Sure, that's how you picked our church. Um, but, 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 but so we can be creative at all of this, Right. Uh, and, and, and by appearances, we're so struck by them. And the apostle tells us that in Christ, there is no Greek or Jew, that his nationality doesn't matter at that point, you see. There's no male or female sex, doesn't matter to God, how he values us. There's no slave or free that is social standing, however you want to read into that expression. It doesn't matter to God. He judges fairly, always righteously, uh, not by these sort of external surfacey kind of matters. But, but we do. And then James says it's evil. And he said it was evil last time as we looked at those verses 1 through 7 because it, it, it dishonored God's own value of the poor, how he regarded them. He chose them to be his, not every poor person, but, but amongst believers, in fact, predominantly in the days of James and even throughout history, I would trust it's the poor who are recipients of God's grace to believe. He seems to love them in ways. And it seems that the Christianity being a religion of the poor um, historically. And so, so they were disregarding those God regarded with his grace. So how could they do that? They dishonored them, dishonored the poor man. Um, and then he said, it's also illogical. Why are you doing this? It's the rich that's oppressing you. Why do you value so highly those who oppress you and take you to court and blaspheme the name by which you were called, blaspheme the very name of Christ? So, so why is it that you would show the rich favor over the poor anyway? And, 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 and now we see He's going to come even deeper, we might even say, to the heart of the matter, not that these others aren't significant and aren't sufficient of themselves, but, 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 but there's this heart of the matter that he gets to in these verses. If I would have time to preach an hour and a half last week, I would have taken up this in the context of it because it all fits uh, together, you see. Um, and so now he gets to the heart of the matter. If I could, just before we get to this, place this then in the context of, of the letter of James. Uh, we've left uh, the end of chapter 1, verse 26, with these words. If anyone thinks he's religious and doesn't bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that's pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their afflictions, to keep oneself unstained from the world. So James... Uh, 
preceded this section in his letter by saying there is something about pure and undefiled religion. There's something that's true, true religion. And he says it means we control our tongues, we have compassionate hearts, and we live our lives unstained, unaffected, or uh, from the world, you see. And, 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 and then he's going to go to chapter 2, verse 14, and he's going to say this, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but doesn't have works? Can that faith save him? So he's saying there's something about pure and undefiled religion, something about there's a true religion, you see, and it's reflected in, yes, what we believe, but also in how we treat one another, how we value each other. And then in chapter 2, he's saying there's a true faith, and there's a true faith that believes all the right stuff, but also then acts in a way that's consistent with that right stuff that we believe. So there's true religion and true faith. In the middle of that, right here, he's talking about how it is that we're to live out this faith. Do you remember um, some time ago, not that long ago, when we were working our way through the book of Titus, uh, just a couple of uh, pages to the left, Paul begins his letter... By saying, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. James is saying the same thing. He's saying, if you believe you have faith and you have a knowledge of the truth, it accords with, it strikes the same chord with godliness. They all go together. It's one beautiful music score, if you will. It accords, it all goes together. James is saying the same thing here. He's saying, listen, if you really believe that this word of God has been implanted in you, that's how he puts it earlier in chapter 1, if this word of God is really implanted in you, you see, then we'll see it. It'll, it'll get, give evidence of this true religion. It'll be compassionate towards the poor, which they weren't by showing favoritism. They said you're worth less than the rich person. Thus, you should have a lesser place among us. The seating in a lesser place was a bigger picture, no doubt, of how they valued and placed one another uh, in their lives, even. And so, here it is. He says, no, no, no. If you really have true religion, then you'll be compassionate to the poor man who comes in. And you won't place him badly, if you will. And... If you say you have faith, but you don't do that which is consistent with your faith, is that real faith? So you see where James is in his whole discussion here. It's helpful to see that. This is going to pull us through the rest of our time. So he's going to get at the heart of it, I would say, now. Because he's going to say what, we've, what they've done here in showing partiality, what we do when we do that is sin against God. And we transgress his law. So it's law breaking. It isn't just that, oh, we've dishonored that person. Yes, we did and all of that. But to do that is to break the royal laws, he puts it, to break the law of God, to sin against God and to transgress his law. Now, those two words, sin and transgression, cover the whole gamut of everything wrong that we can do. The word sin means to miss the mark. We don't go where we ought to transgress means that we go where we ought not, right? When you, when you trespass, when you, you go against something, you, there's a sign that says, don't 
go here and we go there. And so that's what they did. And they sinned and they transgressed, right? They sinned and they missed the mark because they didn't love well this poor man. And on the other hand, they transgressed God's law because they actually put him where they ought not. They treated him as they shouldn't. They didn't treat him as they should. They treated him as they shouldn't. He sinned and transgressed. That's the real heart of it. Now, to work through this passage, I want to do what others have done, but I want to do something I think that is helpful. And I want to organize our thoughts around four words in this passage. The first one is in verse 8, which is the word if. The second one is in verse 9, which is the word but. The third one is in verse uh, 12, which is the word so. And the fourth one is in verse 13, which is the word for. You thought they were going to be significant big words, or didn't you? Uh, but in your reading of anything, especially often the Bible, it's these little words that, uh, that are helpful to us in organizing our thoughts. So he begins with this in verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal uh, law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. So that's the good thing to do. That's righteous. That's right to do. If you do that, if you really do that. So you get the sense he's saying you're really not doing that. But if you really, from the heart, if you really, sincerely, honestly, if you really do that, you fulfill the royal law according to scripture, uh, then you do well. He calls it the royal law, so you get the sense it's of the kingdom. Right? We're royals fans. Aren't we? And so we, we go to the Kaufman Stadium, the men of the church on May 30th. We're going to go and we're going to see a big crown. Why? Because they're the royals. Uh, and so something about the king, right? Uh, we're not quite the king of baseball right now. But, but anyway, uh, that's the hope. But we're, it's, it's the royal law. It's the law of the king, the law of the kingdom, the king's law. Jesus' law really for us is the king of the kingdom. If you really fulfill the royal law, and you'll notice that that royal law is that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So the king's law is that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Not, not a surprise to us. Now, we, we know that, that loving your neighbor as yourself comes from Leviticus chapter 19. But then Jesus also uh, um, speaks of it as part of the summary of the whole law. He says that there are two uh, laws, really, that summarize... Uh, the whole law. In Matthew chapter 22, verse 34, uh, but when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like that. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, Jesus didn't talk, or I mean, James didn't speak of the first part, the first one, the primary one even. We could say to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. He didn't use that one because really the, the, the issue for them was loving one another. So he went to the second one, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, this carries through the New Testament, for instance. If you want to take a little um, walk in the New Testament, when they, uh, Romans and chapter, chapter 13 and verse 8. Paul writes, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for 
the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Same thing that James is saying. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment, or is summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. And then Paul writes again to the churches in in Galatia, in Galatians in chapter 5 and verse 13. He says, for you are called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. James would have said, rather than bite and devour, but if you show favoritism to one another, you consume one another. And then in in chapter 6 of Galatians, in in verse 2, Paul puts it like this, Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. So he's loving each other, is, is bearing each other's burdens, if you will. Now, God said in Leviticus, and Jesus reiterated then, and the others, the apostles, said, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, you remember the great controversy, at least the controversy that developed in, 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 in Jesus' time about neighbor. Remember, there was a, a, a man, you can find this in Luke chapter 10, you know this parable, we call it of the Good Samaritan. But it's so packed. It's so packed. Um, A a lawyer comes up to test Jesus, saying, uh, Teacher, this is verse 25 of uh, Luke 10. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What's written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your hearts and with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. But he, desiring to justify himself, he wanted to show himself, that, 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 he was, that he had done this, that he was really righteous in the sight of God. You see, the great danger for all of us and the danger for the church to which James writes, the danger for us is that we, we want to draw a circle around the, a group of people and call them our neighbors, right? These are my neighbors. We like to do that because then we can say, these aren't my neighbors, and it's so funny that these aren't my neighbors. They're really difficult people, right? <laughs> They're really difficult people to love. So I'm going to say you are my neighbors. Now, that doesn't mean we don't have priorities of loving our, our husbands or wives or loving our children and loving friends and loving people in the body and all that sort of thing. We get that. But we're just like this guy. Love my neighbor as myself. Okay, so give me the list of who my neighbor is. And you know this story. It's just one of those great, only Jesus could tell stories, right? Um, and so, so I love it when unbelievers tell me they, they really admire Jesus' ability to tell a story. <laughs> and I said, if you really admired his ability to tell the story, you'd be as convicted by them as I am, you know? You'd trust him as your savior um, and as the king of all things. But anyway, uh, so you, you get it. There's a, a man, he's on the Jericho Road, probably shouldn't have been, but he's on the Jericho Road, dangerous place, gets robbed, beaten, and he's laying there, Right? And then the people you would expect to be the heroes of the story, a priest and a Levite, the religious guys, they come by and they don't help him. And then a Samaritan, and we get this. We understand, most of us, that Jews hated Samaritans. 
And so as soon as Jesus introduced the Samaritan in the story, the lawyer who asked the question was convicted that he didn't love because all of a sudden he started hating. Oh, the Samaritan. I hate that guy. What's he in this story for? Right. So he just Jesus. I mean, I don't know if he's smiling Jesus on the inside or what's happening here, but he knows he's got them at that point. And he, he has us as well. Fill in the the fill in your own little Samaritan at that point in time. Who is it that would just make you angry in the middle of that story? Not that guy. He can't be the hero. He can't be the good guy. And so the Samaritan comes. And what's he do? Well, he loves the other person as himself, doesn't he? He does for the other person what he would want someone to do for him. If you're lying beaten on the road and somebody walks by you, what do you want them to do for you? If that were you lying there, you would want them, if you were loving them as yourself, you would want them to stop and to help you and to care for you. Right? And that's what the Samaritan does. But then... Jesus goes on, and at the end of the story, after the Samaritan helps the man and all that, Jesus says, who was the neighbor to the man who was in need? See, we want to say our neighbor is everybody in need, and that's fine. But Jesus' point isn't that at all. His question is, which of these three, the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And they have to say, the Samaritan, they don't say that, they just say the one who showed mercy. See, we're to be neighbors. Neighbors are those who love. That's the point of it. It isn't that we have a group called neighbors. It's that we're neighborly. It's that we love, you see. We show mercy to those in need. Basically, what Jesus is saying is, we need to be like the ones we hate. We need to be like the Samaritan in this story. You can only imagine how awful that lawyer felt as he left, if he really paid attention to the story, because he was stung by his own question and by the answer that Jesus gave. So go then and love those in need. Be a neighbor, if you will, in that sense. And we're to, be, we're to love one another as we love ourselves. Now, bear in mind, please, because this is sometimes a confusion. Bear in mind that there is no command to love ourselves. The command is to love our neighbor. The assumption is that we have a measure of love for ourselves, a, a certain self-interest, a certain self-concern, so that when we are hurt and in need, we take care of ourselves to the degree that we can, right? That's the sense of it. There's no command to love yourself. In, in fact, there's a great danger of a certain aspect of self-love. We know that sometimes we can say we love ourselves too much. That is, we're overly concerned about ourselves. We look out for ourselves too much. We're too self-interested, too self-concerned, concerned that leads to self-centeredness and selfishness where the whole world then seems to revolve around us. That's not what Jesus is saying here at all. He's saying there's a certain care that we have for ourselves. For instance, in Ephesians and chapter 5, where Paul is writing about the love of husbands for wives, he says this in verse 28, Ephesians 5, 28. 
He said, in the same way, the same way that Christ has loved us, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. You see, because we're members of his body. You see, husbands are to love their wives as they love themselves. Wives are to love their husbands as they love themselves. The sense there is we care for ourselves. We have a certain care for ourselves. That's what it means. This quote, this commentary in James, is, is, it was helpful to me. I think the guy's supposed trying to be humorous some, but he's British, so it's not that funny. But um, he says this. He says, if we want to know how we're to love our neighbors, then we must ask a prior question. How do we love ourselves? Never, it's to be hoped, with an emotional thrill. Uh, rarely, as a matter of fact, with such a sense of satis- with much sense of satisfaction, mostly with pretty wholesome disapproval, often with complete loathing. That's his funny part. But always with concern, care, and attention. When we catch sight of our faces in the mirror first thing in the morning, the word ugh comes spontaneously to the lips. Yet at once, we take that revolting face to the bathroom. Uh, we wash it and tend it and make it as presentable as nature will allow. And so it goes on through the day. Loving ourselves means providing loving care and attention. This is the model on which we're to base our relationships to all to whom we owe neighborly duty. Everything conspires today to find love primarily in emotional terms. Scripturally, love is to be defined in caring terms. For the love that is owed to our neighbor is the love we expend on ourselves, you see. We're to care for one another. That's the point of it. We're to care for one another as we care for ourselves. The golden rule puts it that we, we care for others as we desired to be cared for. Right? We do to others as we desire them to do for us. That's this proverbial expression. You can't press it at every point. If you're a drug addict and you want people to give you drugs, don't give drugs to people. You see, that's not the point of it. We get that. We know what he means here by this proverbial expression. But we're to love one another as we love ourselves. We're to care for each other as we care for ourselves. We're to care for others as we desire them to care for us. The robber on the road wanted someone to stop and care for him. The uh, Samaritan realized if that were me, I would want someone to stop and care for me. So uh, I will care for them. That's the point of it. That's how we're to love. All right? Now we see it here that they didn't love like that. That this poor man walked in and they didn't treat him as they would have wanted to be treated. They valued him, not as they would want to have been valued. And they failed then to really love him. They failed to love their neighbor. So they broke this royal law of God. And then we get to verse 9. I spent a lot of time on verse 8. I'll quicken up here. Uh, Verse 9, the but. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors, you see. So you become a a violator, a breaker of God's law. And you might think, you might think, well, it's just a little one. I mean, it's it's just, there's 10 of those commandments, right? And I just sort of maybe touched on a couple by showing partiality. What's the big deal about that? And you may think even in the context of, of your own life, 
well, I haven't done this and I haven't done that and I haven't done this one. Oh, I do this one sometimes, but not always. But that's a misunderstanding of God's law, you see. It isn't like a pile of ten stones when you can take one out and they all stand. It's more like a sheet of glass. When it's hit in one place, it all breaks. And that's James' point here. He says, but if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. You say, well, how can he say that? Well, here's how he can say that. Verse 11. For he who said, it's all about God. He who said. See, we need to realize that these laws, even as summarized in the Ten Commandments, even as summarized in love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors. That's... That's a a revelation, if you will, of God. That's how he reveals himself. Turn to Deuteronomy somewhere. Chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4, please. And notice how God puts it of himself. Deuteronomy chapter 4. Let me begin with verse 9, just because it really begins in the middle of that verse. Verse 9, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 9. Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your hearts all the days of your life. Here's where I need here. Make them known to your children and to your children's children, how on, how on the day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, gather the people to me so that, so that I may let them hear my words, so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth and that they may teach their children so. And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while the mountain burned with fire to the hearts of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud and gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. And he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform. That is the Ten Commandments. You see, God revealed himself, not in a form. That's why the second commandment, don't make a picture of God. Don't try to make a statue of God. Don't try to make an image of God. Why? Because that's not how he communicated himself to us. And we'll mess it up. We'll we'll miss who he really is. How did he communicate himself to us? What's his revelation of himself to us? With words. And what were those words? There were ten of them. And we call them the Ten Commandments. To love the Lord your God, to, love your, to, to have no other gods before him, to, to have no, other, no images, to, to honor his name, to rest in him and him alone, right? To honor your father and mother, to not to murder, you see, not to commit adultery, be faithful in your relationships, not to steal, not to lie, not to covet. He says, that's who I am. That's why they can say of me, God is love. That's what it means to really love, you see. So if you break any of these, it isn't just you've broken one out of ten or one and a half out of ten or six out of ten. That isn't the point of it. The point of it is you've offended against my holy nature, against me. Your sin is against me. That's why we prayed in our prayer of confession, as David put it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Uh, My sin is always, always only against you, God. Now, it's against others, but it's against God. Every sin is against God. If I hurt you, I hurt God. I break his love and loved my neighbor as myself. And so he says, so this is significant. Even this partiality that we show 
And we don't think it's a big deal, but it is a big deal. So verse 12 then, he says, so, that's my next word. So speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Now, notice, he, he moves from the royal law, God's law, to the law of liberty. He's done that before. He called it the law of liberty before. But, but, but he, says, he says, realize, church, you're going to be judged by God by the law of liberty. And we said, well, wait a minute. I, I thought we weren't going to be judged by the law. I thought Jesus already did that for us. Um, he did. He did. But we need to understand our relationship now to this law. Romans 3.20 says that no one will be justified by this law. Ephesians 2.8 says that we're, we're saved by grace through faith. It is not by obeying the law. We get that. We also get Romans 6.14 that says sin has no longer any dominion over us for we're no longer under law but grace. Well, what does that mean? In relation to what James is talking about. Did James get it wrong here? No, not at all. You see, the law, in relation to our relationship to it, has a number of different uses, as the reformers would put it. Uh, one was this. That the law is a mirror. It reveals God to us, as we've just said. It shows his very nature. And also it re- reveals to us our sin. So Paul could say that the law is a tutor that leads us to Christ. When we really see it. We see God's holiness and our sin. It leads us to him, you see. But then what do we do? What do we do after we've been led to him? How then should we live? I don't want to do what I used to do because I, I know that was sin. That was wrong. Now, now what do I do now? So we go to God and we say, what should I do? Give me some help here. And he goes, I will. Obey me. Please me. How do I do that? Well, here's who I am. Love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. How do I do that? Well, uh, you need to honor your father and mother. Love in the family relationships. Be faithful. And live as I've structured life to be lived. Don't murder. Respect one another's life and all that that means. Do that which promotes life. That's why we do the baby bottle thing for the pregnancy care center, right? Because that's good to do. That's the royal law of God. That's what we do. We don't murder. We bless life, right? Don't commit adultery. Be faithful in your relationships, especially this most intimate relationship of husband and wife. And that is bearing then on how we live our life. Well, what does it really mean to marry? Well, it means a man and a woman marrying together, you know, Lifelong monogamous relationship, you see. So don't don't commit adultery. Don't 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 go against that. Right? Don't take from each other. Respect each other's property. Don't lie to each other. Respect one another to tell each other the truth, and love one another so that you're not coveting what the other has, but rather being grateful that they have it, and say, "Good for you. That's great." I don't covet your house or your wife or your success. I'm glad it's yours. I'm glad God has so blessed you. That's really love, you see. So we'll live like that. Oh, could we say love my neighbor as myself? Well, yeah, that too. That works, you see. So live like that. And he says that's how you're to be judged. Now, fortunately for us, as believers in Jesus, Jesus has already done all of that for us. 
And he's taken the penalty for every time we haven't done it. And he's given us his spirit now and his righteousness that we can walk in his ways. And so that's why it's called the law of liberty. That's it, you see. It's freedom. You are made to live like this. You see, to live any other way is bondage. It's slavery. And so get it. I've released you from slavery. Just like I took the Israelites who were in Egypt. And I released them from slavery by the blood of the lamb. And I brought them to the mountain and said, live like this. You were enslaved. Now you're free. This is how you live freely. Thus, it's the law of liberty. To the degree that we don't live that way, we're still living in bondage. So we need to live free, and we're going to be judged by this law of liberty. So bear that in mind. But then he says this. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. We get that. Uh, That was the parable that I read earlier before a time of confession. I only used the first part of it for our confession. The first part of it was this man who owed an unimaginable amount of money to his master and had the audacity to say, give me till Monday and I'll pay you, which was just completely a lie. He could never have done it. It was way too much for him to pay. His master forgave him. He showed him mercy, you see. And so the point is, If you've been shown mercy by God, how can you withhold mercy from another? That was the point of the whole parable. Because what happened was this man who had received this great mercy went out and and he he found a guy that owed him a payable amount, a a small amount, relatively speaking. And and the man couldn't pay it and, and he put him in prison. And we all are incensed by it. Well, the kicker for us, as in most of Jesus' parables, the kicker was, we're like that. We've received this great mercy from God. He's accepted us, not because we deserve it. In fact, we deserve the exact opposite. We're the one who deserves to be put over in the corner at best. Really, we're the ones that should be cast out. But he doesn't do that. He brings us in. And he gives us the best seat in the house. Ephesians in chapter 2. The apostle writes, But God, verse 4, But God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, And seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What seat do we have? Not the one in the corner. We have the one in heavenly places seated in Christ Jesus. We have the best seat imaginable. And that's the mercy of God. We don't deserve it at all. But yet we have that. And so knowing that, he says to them, how can you treat each other the way you treat each other when you've received such mercy? We of all people should know the meaning and be thrilled by the meaning of the last sentence. Mercy 
triumphs over judgment. (laughs) We know that. Because on the day that Jesus, the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was with his disciples and he took bread. And after giving thanks, he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, our Lord Jesus took the cup. And again, after giving thanks, this too he gave to his disciples and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. The apostle adds, As often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we declare the Lord's death until he comes. What do we declare when we declare the Lord's death? We're declaring the mercy of God. We're declaring his kindness to undeserving sinners. We're declaring that he was moved by our need and he gave his son to die for us that we might be seated in heavenly places and not condemned. That's the mercy that we've been shown. And thus the word to us as those who have received mercy. Now we need to be merciful. How could we not? We need to love one another. As Christ has loved us. We need to love our neighbors. Care for them. As we care for ourselves. And we can. Because Christ has come. And that law, love your neighbor as yourself, now frees us, you see. His precept, as some have put it, has become a promise. His precept to love our neighbors as ourselves now becomes a promise. Because of Christ, because of his spirit living in you, you can love your neighbor as yourself. That's liberty. Who is it that you are to love? Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for the work of Christ. And even as we consider coming to this table, this table of the Lord, we pray that you would set this bread and this juice apart in such a way that we'd know that we're in the presence of Jesus, this one who is the manifestation of the mercy of God. And that we would appreciate anew and afresh the mercy we've received. And so enable us now to be free. To show mercy even as we've received mercy. And to do it with great joy. Bring to mind people and places where we can show mercy. And to love well. So please, now, as we come to this table, Jesus, meet us. Assure us of your presence with us, deep in our faith. And grant us, by your Spirit, strength to live all that you call us to. That we may fulfill, through Jesus, the royal law. To love our neighbors as ourselves. And this, I pray. 
In Jesus' name.